Welcome to Axios Pro Rata, where we take just 10 minutes to get you smarter on the collision of tech, business, and politics. Sponsored by Bridge Bank. Be bold. Venture wisely. I'm Dan Mac. On today's show, the big takeaway from yesterday's Apple event and the best job in journalism. But first, China gets rusty. So when we Americans think of the new China, we likely think of high-rise strewn cities that somehow shine through the smog, like Beijing and Shanghai. But the country also has a glut of shrinking, forgotten cities that are becoming a bit reminiscent of America's Rust Belt. Specifically, a recent report identifies 180 Chinese cities that are losing people. And a lot of those are in the Northeast, near the borders with Russia and North Korea, a region with reported GDP of 6% last year versus 11% in 1990. These cities are where, in the early days of China's Communist Party, there were huge state-owned factories open, focused on things like steel and coal. But like those same sorts of cities stateside, they've been left behind by modernity, with young people moving to cities for more technology and service-oriented employment. It's not something China likes to talk about too much, for obvious reasons, but it is a major concern for government leaders who've proven unable to sufficiently balance a move away from manufacturing with the employment needs of millions of its workers. The bottom line, China is dealing with a huge economic challenge right now from the U.S., but its bigger problems may be closer to home. In 15 seconds, we'll go deeper with Axios reporter Erica Pandy. But first, this. Bridgebank believes in the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors, those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. That's why Bridgebank has been dedicated to providing financial solutions to sponsor-backed emerging technology and growth companies for nearly two decades through its national network of banking teams and offices. Bridgebank is a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridgebank, be bold, venture wisely. We're joined now by Axios future reporter Erica Pandey. Why did you decide to look into this issue of what you're calling China's rust belt in the first place? I think it first piqued my interest because when we talk about China, there's this story of millions of people being brought out of poverty in the last few decades of these huge cities like Beijing and Shanghai and just unstoppable economic growth and might. But there are some of the same problems that we see here and the exact same problem of the Rust Belt region that the central government just doesn't really know what to do with. You know, you talk about that. You talk about how there have been kind of these revitalization plans that have been shelved and then they've tried new revitalization plans. And I think anybody, you know, familiar really, particularly with any Midwestern city, kind of has heard that story before, so long as, you know, they've been around 20 or 30 years. China is still a kind of centrally controlled government. Why haven't they been able, at least financially, been able to kind of fix the problems? Yeah, so that's a really interesting question because, you know, people would say if China, which has all of this concentrated power in the middle, can't fix their Rust Belt, what does that mean about Rust Belts and other? more democratic parts of the world. And China has kind of a unique case when speaking with scholars who've traveled in the region who are looking at why these revitalization plants aren't working. They're seeing that the central government wants to basically bring the same market reforms that turned southeastern China into this booming kind of economic story to the northeast. But the northeast has very different conditions. I mean, it's got it's rich in natural resources. It's got a whole different climate. It's next to Russia and North Korea. It's just very different from the southeast. And the same reforms aren't working. And also because there's some been some backlash from the local officials, uh, you know, scholars say, who are feeling kind of neglected by the central party who are saying, okay, they're focusing all their energy on the Southeast. So there's a little bit of, you know, bureaucratic delay happening because there's some bitterness there where people feel like they've been left behind from anywhere from the local officials to the 
average citizens. How much of this is just about kind of modernization in general? You know, so when you think of the U.S., part of the issue has been that manufacturing or even agricultural economy has moved more toward a services economy. Is that the case also in China? Because we still hear so much about Chinese manufacturing. I mean, I think that's the story that the Communist Party would like to tell, that, you know, we're, we're no longer the factory of the world. We have our own economy. But China definitely still relies on manufacturing. And I think part of that revitalization plan has been, okay, let's keep this region as a manufacturing region, but just change it into high-tech manufacturing and AI and robotics. But that just doesn't happen overnight. And that's a hard thing to transition geographically. That's the kind of thing, I mean, you hear about it always in the U.S. of these, you know, so-called clusters and this idea that when you have a tech company, particularly a big one, it spawns other ones, but it seems to spawn them locally. That's the reason Silicon Valley is Silicon Valley, and that hasn't extended even, you know, next door into a place like Nevada. How do you best understand China's economy? And, and I mean, in the sense of we hear a lot from the White House, for example, about how China's economic growth is slowing, which is true, but it's still growing well faster than our economy is. So give me a sense. How do you view China's economy right now? I think it's hard to come up with something very, very accurate just because the economic data that comes out is pretty muddy. But, you know, like you said, for China, slowdown means growth at you know 4.6 percent, which is still compared to here, it's, it's much higher. I think that there's a lot of problem spots like this Rust Belt. There could be other Rust Belts that prop up as the other factory towns become defunct. They're starting to spell trouble. You make a comment in your piece today that the trade war has actually helped these cities, which seems counterintuitive because in the U.S. it, it has been the Rust Belt and, and the Farm Belt, really, that have gotten hit particularly hard. Why has the U.S.-China trade war actually helped some of these so-called Chinese Rust Belt cities? This really surprised me because as I was talking to folks, I was expecting kind of, and the trade war is adding on top of the problems just as we over here. But, you know, this Northeast region is actually a huge soybean producer for China. So, you know, as American soybeans leave the picture, it's becoming more important. And the kind of production that happens in the Northeast in that Rust Belt, those goods are sold domestically throughout China. So they're not relying on that American consumer or an international kind of export business. Not the flip side of that, but on the other side, you also make a comment that opioid addiction has become a major deal there. Again, the mirrors and the parallel here are a lot. That's not because of, you know, Johnson Johnson's marketing campaign in the Chinese Rust Belt. Why is opioid addiction becoming such a problem in those regions? When you're talking about just the source of the drugs, there are a lot of illicit drugs coming in from North Korea, which is quite close to the region. But, you know, it's the same kind of thing that we're seeing here. People feel hopeless. If you look around the world, no modern economy has figured out a way to fix their quote unquote rust belt. And there's a sense of, you know, there's no future, there's no solution. And this region that used to be the pride and joy of China in the last century is now kind of forgotten. And there's definitely a depression that has settled over the area. Finally, how big a deal is this for China's leadership, particularly when it comes to kind of the government's general desire to have, and obviously every government does, but maybe more so in China, this concept of social stability. Right. So there really haven't been huge protests in the region since really the 90s, but it is festering. It's gotten worse, not better. And for the Chinese government, more than any other government in the world, arguably, a lot of unemployed people who are getting frustrated and getting angry and getting exasperated is really not a good sign. 
something we will keep our eyes on. Thank you so much, Erica Pandy, future reporter for Axios. Thanks, Dan. My final two right after this. With offices and tech hubs throughout the country, including San Francisco, Boston, and Atlanta, and new offices in Seattle, Denver, and Chicago, BridgeBank continues to meet the innovation ecosystem wherever it thrives. And through its teams focused on technology and life sciences companies and the equity investors who fuel them, BridgeBank delivers a responsive, high-touch client experience. BridgeBank is a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. Now it's time for my final two. And first up is Apple, which yesterday held its annual big product unveil. And by Apple standards, it was a bit of a dud, as all we got was the expected hardware upgrades without any new mouth-dropping devices. But Apple's really been working to become more of a services company. And in that vein, we did get a piece of news that reverberated throughout Silicon Valley, namely that the company's new streaming service will cost just $4.99 per month, which is well lower than Netflix and even below Disney's new Disney Plus offering. Why it matters isn't because people are going to give up Netflix for Apple, at least not yet, given how few shows Apple will have at launch. No, instead, it's because this move and Disney's move reflect how the streaming market has become so crowded that there is finally pricing pressure, as cord cutters aren't willing to pay more for TV now than they were in the old days of the cable bundle. And finally, a Dallas-based food writer named Jose Rolat has been hired by Texas Monthly Magazine to be the journalism world's first taco editor. Yeah, it's a real masthead position and comes six years after Texas Monthly hired the country's first barbecue editor. The bottom line, I love speaking with you each day here on this podcast, but if Jose decides to retire, I may need to bite into a new opportunity. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producers, Tim Shovers and Lily Wimberly, have a solemn National Day of Service and Remembrance, and we'll be back on Friday with another Pro Rata Podcast.